0: Yeah. So uh, I do want to actually, you know what? Before we get going, I have to apologize for a huge omission last week in uh, my top three or like funniest cultural moments of 2020. I omitted the most important one that I had on my list because I was uh, caught up in the fever of potting. Um, Real heads know, you know what it's like when you get in that space. I failed to mention the story of my Twitter ad, which is Baylor Sword Poet. It is the most important thing that happened oh, um, yes. culturally in 2020. <laughs> so in August, there were, um, a new, maybe July, there were a renewed round of uh, Black Lives Matter protests in Dallas, Texas. And one uh, person who re- remained nameless, uh, he's been shamed enough, let's be honest, was living in his luxury condos in downtown Dallas, frightened to death that his concierge might be overrun by Black Lives Matter protesters and that they may come up to his apartment specifically to attack him. Now, I'm inviting you into the mind of a particular type of white fragility where any sort of group of protesters is definitely thinking about killing you, specifically white person who was afraid. In your apartment or in your condo, yes, they know who you are, <laughs> their spidey sense is tingling, and they will come
1: for you specifically. Uh, I, have,
2: I have never heard of this this <laughs> is so exciting to me.
1: oh, you don't even know the best part because what what they also didn't know is the is the plot twist of what this what this guy had in store in his apartment for them.
0: yeah, but first <laughs> so this we've seen other outbreaks of this kind of energy all over the country this year, but especially personified in the McCloskey's, the couple in St. Louis who came out of their house with an AR-15 and a handgun to point at protesters because they were for sure that they were the ones that uh, were finally going to be put to the test. If your evangelical church has like an armed security guard, leadership in your church may also be suffering from this particular type of white uh, racist paranoia. So this guy... (laughs) Other symptoms
1: include... (laughs)
0: <laughs> Other symptoms include being told as a white woman not to stop at a rest area. Uh advice that that my wife frequently
1: gets. Um, Constant posting on Nextdoor.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. Nextdoor is a uh is a hive. It's yeah. the groupthink version of all of this. Anyway, so this guy also happens to be a traditional Catholic and a poet who submits terrible poetry to First Things, the ultra right Catholic magazine. Everyone who writes for it is, of course, a friend of the pod.
1: And a classics and major. He, he was and like, a classics major at Baylor. At Baylor. Yeah. B- important. Oh, Sick can't trust bears. a classics major. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> can't
2: trust um, a classics major or a Baylor grad, honestly.
1: What about poets? So true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> They're on thin fucking ice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this guy decides to grab his, I'm assuming it's, He decides to grab a sword off of his wall, probably a reproduction for the Lord of the Rings film series, run outside and challenge the protesters themselves. So you may have seen this video of a guy running towards a group of protesters, holding a sword over his head, screaming. And uh, they, you know, proceed to defend themselves by beating the living shit out of this (laughs) guy. Yes. I mean, he gets like knocked to the ground almost immediately and then just kicked until he like passes out. It is like the video is like brutal as hell. But at the time, everyone was like, oh my God, Black Lives Matter protesters just beat the crap out of this guy. No, he charged them with a sword. <laughs> with,
1: with like a huge sword. <laughs> like, like, like
0: a big sword. Yeah, like a broad like A broadsword broad for sure. And, um, you know, he was immediately attended to by street medics. And then he tweeted from the hospital his whole like mental process of going through this idea that he was going to get attacked, that his concierge was going to get overrun. And so he decided to take up arms and be a man and go out and defend his castle, aka luxury condo. Anyway, so the Baylor Sword Poet, that was my favorite cultural moment of 2020. If you don't know any about what I'm talking about, uh, get online, first of all, post more but Google this story, because uh, it's absolutely hilarious. And that guy wrote a poem for first things called Winter. I'm going to see if I can pull
1: it up while y'all... I believe this happened okay. in Dallas, too. Uh, fan of the okay. show Dallas. Listen,
2: I know I went in. I went in hard on the North Dallas suburbs <laughs> last week. And yeah. I would like to extend that to fuck anyone who lives in a condo
1: in Dallas. With a with a potential uh, remake of a Lord of the Rings sword, I mean, you all have to be careful. I, just, for, listen, I'm just gonna I, say, for a coming episode, we should probably not go too hard in on too hard on the uh, Lord of the Rings fans. Just a little teaser I'm not for Lord
2: of the Rings fans.
1: Okay, just make sure.
2: me. I'm a huge, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. I'm anti-Dallas, is what I am, and I'm also anti baylor So, okay. turn down the
0: gauntlet. I'm sorry, but for a while, this guy made his profile private after he got absolutely dragged. But his most recent tweet, I just have to share this, is if you are under the age of 50, you will live to see the end of American democracy. You will live to see the downfall of the Republic. You will live to see America's Caesar and its Augustus, the monarchial reorganization of the American empire, plan accordingly. So there's everything you need to know about the Baylor sword poet. (laughs) (laughs) A poem by C.A. Schultz the man beaten nearly to death in Dallas. Here we go. I'm just going to read the final stanza of this poem because it's really long. But winter thus is death and yet a flower blooms within and there is promise still that all the world shall live again. What is begun in wintertime will not end in despair, but shall yet have its victory, its triumph bright and fair. Come cruel winter, come. And so thus hasten your demise. Come so that the spring may come and all the earth arise.
2: Okay, I don't know that we've mentioned this on the pot, but Brian and I both have MFAs. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so we are two experts who can say that that is a very bad poem. But I think my immediate issue is that winter is like, like the as a symbol or an image in poetry is like, it's very obviously death. Like when you start talking about winter in a poem, you're talking about death. Like that's just, I mean, that's like, they teach you that in like high school. So saying winter, thus is death and like the final stanza of your poem is the laziest writing I've ever heard.
1: (laughs) I think it might have something to do with Jesus. I think that might be what he's going for. Just putting that out there. Using my critical thinking skills here. Flower blooming. Flower blooming, life coming, something like that. Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. This is Isaac. And today we're going to do something completely different. So for the long time, uh, until we get canceled, listener, you, you might be shocked. You might be shocked by the uh, what's going to happen. But we're going to spend today's episode constructing something. We're going to spend today's episode being positive. Thoughts?
0: I don't want to ruin the energy by speaking, so... <laughs> I've been told that it's impossible for me to say a positive
1: word. Well, we're gonna test that theory today. Uh, I mean, that would have been great if this was just a solo uh Carrie and Brian pod. It's like Isaac was not invited. <laughs> we're doing a positive pod. We had to we had to let Isaac go for a little while. We brought out Thea back. It's true. <laughs> uh
0: okay, so we've been challenged this week to say something positive. So you can't constructive constructive even get the word without.
1: out. <laughs> you can't even get the word out. You're like, we've been trying to say something. Positive. <laughs> it's painful for me. Um, it's painful noted, for me. Noted optimist, the, Isaac. <laughs> uh,
0: you know what? I am optimistic about the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, we've spent the last few weeks doing episodes where we sort of deconstruct a lot of stuff. And first of all, Some folks have asked what in the world that even means to say like deconstructing belief. But so I just want to say one quick thing about what that means. And I think it's just like going back to that theme that we've sort of been hitting in the first three episodes, especially about how our faith is, is, um, we receive a faith that is shaped by those who are giving it to us and the people around us who are speaking with authority. And while that lasts for a time as young people, uh, eventually, as an adult, you have a noose that You gain more knowledge, and you kind of have to re-examine all of the kind of uh, assumptions you hold about your faith. And taking those apart and examining them and questioning them—that's what deconstructing is. You know, you take apart what doesn't work for you and what doesn't make sense as an adult, and you leave some things behind. Sometimes you leave the whole thing behind, but uh, but also after that deconstruction, deconstruction hopefully comes like a rebuilding up. And uh, part of what we were saying in that first episode is that uh, some folks who come out of the church uh, who are speaking in a similar vein to us want to encourage you to sort of always continually deconstruct. Like that becomes your new faith practice or your new spirituality to constantly be like kind of ripping things up and, and examining them and and tossing them away. But I, I think also there's a there's a second alternative where you can... Where you build back up a, a new understanding of God that belongs to you as an adult, and one of the things that I've you know coming out of the academy as a person who studied theology for five years, a lot of theology isn't isn't really accessible or helpful, and and doing this kind of work of construction because the jargon is just so intense. It's like you can't write a new theology book without coming up with your own sort of neologism to describe your theology. But when I was working in the academy and in the church, I just started like saying a couple of things about God that I think are helpful starting points that I want to run them by Carrie and Brian so that I can get their feedback on them. And we can kind of do this as an exercise for what some of that constructive theology can look like. And it's pretty simple, uh, but I think it contains the multitudes. And it's basically... Um, part A and part B. And it goes like this God is not a cop and Jesus isn't Santa Claus. I think you can do an entire theology just from those two statements. <laughs> part of it, it just inevitably there is this this sentence can be used as sort of a deconstructive tool because a lot of times the first thing that God is not a cop is meant to speak to is the fact that people's people have been taught, um, for most of their young adult formation, especially as teens, that God is all about policing your body. That uh, faith is private. That it's a secretive thing. Sort of like your sexual desire, your uh, questions about you know who you are as a person, the matters of identity. That all of that is something that faith is supposed to police and sort of keep control of, and keep from. Flourishing or growing in a direction that doesn't line up with um, sort of Christian principles, and so we end up thinking that categories like sin and and holiness and all of these things really come down to matters of purity and personal practice. So if you say fuck, then like you've done a sin and it's bad because God is ultimately a cop sitting in in heaven, like looking around, giving you speeding tickets for messing up or, you know, touching yourself or whatever else. And, and, you know, what I think is really deadly about that thought of God being a cop is that it, it turns the focus of divine attention sort of inward on you as the primary sort of object of contemplation by the who you've been told is the you know triune creator of the world, but also that you become activated as an agent in policing other people as well, and so the work of the church, the work of spirituality, becomes sort of this policing of other people and and uh, the creating and building and forming of boundaries that separate especially along racial lines, especially along lines of sexual orientation, and that those boundaries have to be protected at all costs. That's the purpose of the church, and that's what God has called us all and formed us into to be as Christians, um, policemen at the boundaries of what's acceptable about ostensibly private things. So there's also this inherent contradiction here that... This, these questions and worries and doubts and fears that you've been told are sinful are deep you've also been told are deeply private and yet the public practice of the church is to interrogate your private life. And so this thing that you're constantly being told not to speak about, you're also constantly being asked to sort of publicly perform through you know uh, testimonials or um, extravagant, emotionally manipulative weekend youth retreats where you like sort of have this climax of performative emotion on Saturday night. You like give yourself to the Lord again or whatever. Like, it's, so there, it's, it's something where like, you're kind of always being pulled back and forth between this fear of what exactly is um, my relationship with God? What does it look like? It looks like this, these very particular things about me that most of the time I can't control, but also that everyone from my pastor to my parents to my youth director should have uh, an opinion about. So th- that's just kind of the first move. And there's another one, but I want to stop there and kind of let y'all
1: respond. What do you think? Well, you made the you made the point there for deconstruction, right? Like mm-hmm. th- that's the point of deconstruction, right? There is to be able to deconstruct out of those. Harmful or I would say incorrect, you know, portraits or characters of God, and so. But the and and so I, I'm just, I'm trying to get back to what you were talking about first with that, and so the idea of like you know you can deconstruct, but if you keep constructing, you're just, you're you're never going to get out of that hole, right? And so like the construction part becomes where you get to start reading scripture and being a part of a a, a healthy. Worshiping community, or even if it's just um, um, friends of people that you know, like the the ability to kind of then construct God in the ways that you are able to say, this is something that I know about God, and it's this this one good thing boom, you put that brick in place and you kind of keep building up from there. So I just wanted to make sure that we didn't have to say that de- deconstruction can take a long time. I mean, there's people in seminary who never get out of deconstruction mode. They, they spend three years because they've never been introduced to this idea that they can that they can challenge their viewpoints of God or they just can't, can't shake it. You know, working with teenagers, you see this a lot where they kind of have to rest on this very binary, black and white type of faith. And so like one of the things that I was always trying to do with them is that they wouldn't go through this in their 20s. It right? Maybe. As Deeply as they might otherwise, but to have them asking those questions early on, to be able to not deconstruct necessarily in that role, because I want them to go on the ski trip. Um <laughs> I don't want don't don't want my numbers to fail. Um But but to to get them to start asking questions, right, mm-hmm. and to have those. Que- <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen. As the pers- ski trips come on, ski trips. I guess you do I have- live in Minnesota. <laughs>
2: We, I, I have went, a I legendary a, story about a high school ski trip. that okay. we can save for a later pod. We should have a youth
1: ministry episode. Uh, I know, I know some people, but uh, we could even invite some of my former youth and let them roast me if you wanted to. But anyway, I, I think I, I, what I'm trying to get at is like deconstruction is a part of painting a portrait of God that is closer to what God is, right? Like, and and being able to say, yeah. Anyway, Carrie, what do you think?
2: Yeah. Okay. You all said a lot, so I'm I'm thinking through what Isaac said about God not being a cop.
1: I just skipped that part.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I think it, it, it's a its a simple statement, but I think also profound in, like, American society. Um, and it makes, I recently reread um, Wearing God by Lauren Winner, which is a really good book about different metaphors for God, if anyone's interested. But I don't know, it makes me think about the metaphors for God that we don't use, like, because I think what I hear you saying, Isaac, is that like the God that we hear about often in um, the American church is is a cop, is like really intimately worried about uh, like every part of your of your mind, like take every thought captive. You know that idea that that God can see and hear all and is like judging you for. Every single bad thought you might possibly have, which is a really Protestant idea, <laughs> like it's not even it's it's rooted in like a really specific way of seeing, and a really American Protestant way of seeing God. But there there are other ways to see God that are in the that are just as biblical, I guess. And as as a person who like experiences obsessive thoughts, and and who for me like taking every thought captive can can enter a spiral, like it's really easy for me to see God as a cop, right? Like it's super easy for me to be like I had one bad thought and now I have to pray 50 times to get that bad thought out of my head or God's going to be really mad. But like the image of God is like a mother hen. Uh, Like a mother hen is, doesn't care uh, what's going, and doesn't even necessarily know what's happening on the inside of her eggs, but she's, she's going to sit on all of them and take care of them regardless. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a good statement. I think we should go from there.
0: Yeah. So I, I mean, so to kind of widen the scope a little bit in two ways, first by saying that uh, you can build up a theology about God. You can construct one by saying with some confidence who God isn't. In fact, many times it's easier to say what God isn't, who God isn't than it is to say like something positive about God. So like, uh, you know, if you want the seminary term for it, that's called apophatic theology, where you sort of try to define God by talking about what God is not. This is definitely a, a beginning point in that kind of apophatic thing, and and so the just kind of binding the scope a little bit is that out coming out of that, then you know, well, two things first to build on a little bit on what Carrie's saying is that you go from this idea of like, okay, so is God far away from me? Is God like, you know, surveilling me like Elf on the Shelf? (laughs) Is God like, in my mind, sort of uh, as a watchful eye, sort of judging everything that comes up to this different sort of take on... God's presence in our lives, which is that God is intimate, much more intimately close to us than anything else, that, you know, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And that it's never Christian life is never a question of like how can we bring God closer to where we are? It's it's more how can we settle into the knowledge and comfort that God is is always with us because our relationship to God isn't, you know, a person standing across a chasm. That separates us, but rather more like our our being and our personality and all the things that are wonderful about us, flowing out of God, like as the uh, energy source and energy source of that, that, like water out of a faucet. That God delights in the particular things about us that are that make us different from other people, be it um, you know neurodivergent thinking practices to. Personality quirks to tastes and beliefs and sexual orientations and desires and and talents that all of those things are delights to the Lord rather than like uh, causes for concern or or potential places for error. But then even when we look at the body of the church, like what is what exactly? what exactly does saying God is not a cop mean for the life of of a community of Christians is that we go from this sort of defensive posture in the world to a, to, you know, being involved deeply in the life of the world, you know, not a Benedict option where we have to go away because the world is going to corrupt and taint us with its like sexual proclivity and sin to like, we are deeply enmeshed with the life of the world from the soil that is at the heart of who we are to the land where we worship to its history of the community that comes before us to like the way that we depend and rely on the people who are around us within within a church community that that all of us, to steal a, a phrase from a Rowan Williams sermon, are touched and spoken and loved into being and that that shaping by community is something that not only we go through and benefit from, but God and in the incarnation has gone through and benefited from in the person of Jesus. That that's part of what makes Christmas uh, a vital part of the the story of our faith is that Jesus became flesh as a baby to go through the same processes as we do because it's a blessed one and a sacred one, not because it's a process of like, constant testing and and possibility for for sinful damage even though we that there is a vulnerability there that we have to acknowledge in the contingency of who we are and and at what time and at what time we were born but all of that posturing places us in a position to want the best for the life of the world around us, creation, our community, people who are different from us. It, it sets us into this posture from not being reactive, but being responsive and, and being positioned towards seeking justice where we are and, and all of that. So did,
1: did you say cataphatic already? Did you talk about the, the flip side of, of uh, apophatic? No, so, I hadn't So said cataphatic it. is like the idea of like being able to say... What God is. Uh, and a lot of people critique that because one of the ideas is the idea that it, as soon as you speak it, it limits what God is. But I think what you're talking about actually makes both of these things play together a little bit easier and better because when you are doing that work, suddenly when you see that in the community, you can speak of what God is, which is almost the exact same of speaking what God is not, right? So like if you can speak against empire or you can speak against the police or speak against militarism or whatever it is, right? Like that is actually saying what God is too. And so there's an interesting play there where I go back and forth on which one of these I Prefer or think about or how I would name God, but I think the way you just you explain that about being involved in the world is really important to how we name and talk about God. Carrie, okay, you good? We yeah. need like a signal. I'm, we need like hands. I'm the
2: uh, I'm the only person on this on this pod without an MDiv, so sometimes I get a little bit lost
1: in well, the weeds. I think it's the idea of like. What we talk about God, like, you know, how do we, when we, when we say things about God, like you're, you're making inherently a theological statement, whether it's a positive or a negative. And so, you know, the the apophatic and cataphatic and stuff like that is just words that I like to use so I can, I can, uh, what do you call it? Uh, validate my student loan payment. <laughs> it's like, I have to bust those out every <laughs> once in a while or that payment doesn't, doesn't work. Um, but I think like that to me is what it is. Like I actually don't have a lot of use for words like that because they do separate people as soon as you start talking about it. But if we we're talking about like, how do we make, I feel like I'm gonna get roasted for saying public theology. But I think like saying like how <laughs> theology becomes more public and we wrestle it away from more evangelical or harmful voices. Like that's that's the work of this, right? Is like being able to say, no, not that, but this, so. You'd
2: only get roasted because Isaac has only listed public theologians he dislikes I so far.
1: <laughs> this is this is the positive episode. Um, yeah, this I mean, is, so <laughs> this is where the, the 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 Kermit the Frog Jedi uh, gif happens, and all of a sudden we just see that that shade coming over Isaac's face. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man. I'm y'all are just trying to trigger me, trying to lead me down the path, but I won't play. What I, I, play what I really
1: like is I, I think the as far as when talking about this is Shane Claiborne. Uh no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, so then
0: <laughs> the third piece about this is that uh you know, to to try to keep building, you know, we're building layers like what is what is a private orientation like, you know, what exactly is the interior life of the Christian? What is the life of the community? And then what is sort of the life of the world is that hopefully what defining God in this particular way helps us see is that what God wants for the world is is a form of life without domination. And um, this is where the line about God not being a cop sort of takes on its most direct, confrontational stance with the role of policing in society today is that, you know, what police do is enforce the rule of, of force, just of violence. And and what gives them their sort of uh, quasi-fascistic power is the fact that they have the power to both uh, enforce the law and make the law. So when uh, someone gets shot in the street by an officer, they have made the law that it's that it is legal and acceptable for this person to be executed by the state um, for supposedly breaking a law through their interaction with the police. So they get to be judge, jury, and executioner all in one moment through their the license that they have from the state to use force in a deadly way. Uh, this is something that we're hitting up against the ceiling of and resisting all over the country right now and all over the world. And yet, it's a type of force and violence that. Can't really be reasoned with. It's just something that can be resisted, and and so I think that when we, a lot of theology, internalizes this and this role of the state and violence and and sort of projects it onto ways that we talk about God in relationship to the world, which is you know, um, God coming to exact uh, payment from sin. On Jesus on the cross, you know God had to punish His only Son in order to like forgive us. There's an internal violence that gets brought up into the triune life through this logic, but but also I think that there's a violence within each that is kind of projected between each other that that comes from this notion of the rule of force that our relationship to another human being has to be dominated by uh, competition by you know scarcity by a lack that produces the need to um, to take what we need from other people, and when we uh, internalize that into our faith, then then the life of the church becomes about worshiping this God who uh, can only sort of move through this world through the through the taking up of space that belongs to other people. So um, this is this can take us down into a, a deeper theological road another time. But I think so much of Christian theology, especially bad theology, is the, uh, is based on this very simple idea that if Carrie and I are occupying the same space, the only way it can be done is if one of us is diminished by the presence of the other. So Carrie either has to sacrifice part of themselves or I... I do in order for us both to be present in that space. And a lot of Christian theology... Not explicitly, but I mean explicitly, but maybe not in a way that we always hear. Operates on that same notion. We can only be holy if Jesus becomes sinful. We can only be saved if if Jesus is killed. We can only be you know loved and appreciated by God if God is hating or punishing someone else. And all of that kind of comes back to this notion of uh, domination that that requires kind of an unjust peace between us and the divine and and us and our neighbors. And I think that ultimately what we see in scripture is a lot of images that focus on this reality come back to this this notion of laying down weapons that that we have to um enter into community and into the world and relationship with God with without that posture of defensiveness and and without that that rule of of force being our first encounter with other people.
1: Tell me if any of this makes sense. Well, it's, I mean, part of it is, I mean, what it strikes me is a lot of it also when you conflate God with the police state or with the police in general, you are talking about authority. And so it limits the amount of ways that you are able to respond to fight against authority that might be unjust, right? So like if if God is conflated with the police, even, even if it's just like the idea of kind of like, Carrie, what you were talking about, like I had this bad thought and like, and so now God is coming to get me for this reason. Like it becomes, it, it that serves the purpose of like authoritarianism, right? The idea that like God is on the side of the police there is no other way. Like it, it removes the possible, right, from from the from the situation, and so that's that's my number one kind of thing when I'm thinking about that. Is it, it kind of it takes that away from people um, and just almost numbs them and says this is the only reality, and this reality serves this group of people, uh, and God also serves that group of people. And when you set that up, it's I mean it, it becomes the recipe for revolution. <laughs> but I mean, but the, but that the intent is to keep people numb and to keep people in check.
2: (laughs) I feel like you're waiting on my response. I don't know that I have like a well-formed thought, but it did. I mean, as, as you were getting into it, I was thinking how we're like three white people talking about God, not being a cop. Um, so maybe a lot of this is uh, kind of like bound up with our own church experiences <laughs> because when I was in undergrad, I don't know. I just, I did this ethnography project for my um, a senior thesis and I interviewed a lot of uh, pastors from black churches in Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, they just had, I learned about this watch night service, like enslaved people used to hold watch night services, asking God if, you know, asking God if they would be freed in the new year, like it would happen on New Year's Eve and they would sit up and wait and ask God to free them in the new year. And that is a tradition that continues in a lot of um, like Baptist and African Methodist Episcopal churches. And so I, I, I think it's good what you're saying. And I, I mean, I agree. Uh, I wonder if maybe, maybe it wouldn't be like quite such a, like a revelatory idea if we, if we weren't white.
0: Yeah, I think think that a lot of this is bound up with uh, the particular necessity of of perpetuating whiteness, 100%. Yeah, there's no question that that's a huge part of it, that we've all been formed to, as Christians, perpetuate a mode of life that is based on this segregated form of violence that is directed towards some people and not others. And yet we go along with it because we're sort of subjected to this own internal policing as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I think that that's uh that's spot on. And I, I think that we see this all the time. And this goes back to that, that notion about the logic of uh, how we occupy space together and, and who must sort of submit sacrifice. And when we, Zoom out from the one, you know, one-on-one relationship to, you know, a societal one in America. The answer has always been: people of color must submit to the presence of white people so that we can be fully realized in our humanity at the expense of other peoples. Absolutely, it's a an attempt to undo some of what I see there as a theological problem at the heart of um, the construction of what it means to be a white person
1: yeah i mean it's it's it becomes easily becomes a theological exercise for somebody like myself right to to consider what God as a cop means um and carry your spot on about God as a cop as a reality um you know for for non uh for it's not a reality for me except for that that sort of exercise that I'm going through so yeah exactly
0: i mean but i I don't think that's quite what I hear carrie saying i i think that what carrie's trying to say is that a lot of this comes out of a particular type of practice that, isn't, uh, that is monocultural, right? That's very specific to um, our experience of what we've been taught to sort of expect from these things. Is that fair, Carrie?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that like what I was trying to say is that it's always the people in power who make God a, pop, who make God a cop. Like uh, the Watch Night services were not praying to a God who was an enslaver. They were praying to a God who set the captives free. And so, I think in marginalized communities everywhere, but especially in America, like, uh, while they, I'm sure, come in contact with the theology where God is identified with the, the police state, uh, I don't think that that's the God that has been formed in those communities because they've necessarily had to create their own theologies. For, uh, otherwise, like, what what would be what would be life giving? Like, what would be good about Christianity for those communities if, if God is their oppressor?
0: Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, this is uh, at the heart of. Uh, so, just to clarify, Brian, because I think that, I, th- I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, it's not an abstract reality for for anyone. It ends up playing itself out, and like. The practices that we cultivate it just becomes an implicit one for white people,
1: right, and then that, that's basically what I was trying to say is that like yeah. i I can operate from that point of view is what I was trying to say, like I can operate from an implicit point of view because there's no physical danger to me doing that um and this is part of this is too is like uh, with a lot of like um like black liberation theology gets into this idea or even liberation theology about changing the categories of theology from a western point of view, and so i i yeah, I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> I'm on board.
0: (laughs) Well, I think, but I think that uh, ultimately building off of what Carrie said, one of the things that I want to point out to people is that this is at the heart of why, um, you know, most mainline Protestant and evangelical churches are, you know, 90% or 95% or 99% white because we're proclaiming different gods uh, in a lot of ways. We're like, why people have been caught up in this sort of false idol. And that has more to do with civil religion than, than it does with, with the actual God of, of Israel that, that is revealed in, in Jesus or in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. And, and I think that this gets back again to what we talked about in episode three with Kevin about like some of the very particular ways that that has led the church to get in, in bed with politicians uh, is not an accident. I think that we need to wrap up here. So we're going to have to put in a pin and the, uh, the second part of this for another time. But the very disappointing reality of Jesus not being Santa Claus, part of why I'm raising my child in a no Santa Claus household is that, sorry, everybody, Jesus is not going to find you a boyfriend or a girlfriend.
1: That's... Uh, the, but Jesus
2: could be your boyfriend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> next time on Until We Get Canceled. <laughs> no, but
0: I, I just want to... I want to give people a, a music recommendation at the end of this here. There's a pretty good song that encapsulates all of this that if you want to figure out more about what I've been trying to say, just listen to it and dance dance to it. It's called I Know a Place by Muna, M-U-N-A. Um, and it's it's about the theology that I'm talking about. I don't know if they mean it that way, but that's what I take it to mean. You so should, you, should do that, that you should
1: do that every week for us. Just before, you should be like, Brian and Carrie, I have this song that's going to really tell you what I'm going to be talking about this week. So it'll give us a little bit of clarity going in so we can kind of track with you a little bit better. Mm, that was supposed yeah, to be a burn, but, but it's like it's an old man burn, sorry. <laughs> I hang my head in shame. A boomer burn. A boomer burn. Oh no. <laughs> you have no power. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> once again not a boomer but yes I will I'll accept that
0: <laughs> You're not a boomer until you boomerify yourself
1: that's all I'm saying Bo- Boomerfy yourself sounds like an the type of thing somebody would share on Facebook so anyway hey that's maybe that's the way we get this podcast going that's how we monetize this podcast is boomerfy yourself boomerfy yourself however you say it when that's all right so crate media people take note we could just
0: aim our podcast and making them as mad as possible so that they like subscribe to get even more mad.
1: We could we could have some kind of like subscription level like five dollars if you just want the pod, but ten dollars if you never want to see the pod or any of our takes on your timeline. (laughs) So we can we can scrub your timeline, something like that. That works. Ten
2: dollars. Ten dollars for us to block you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Oh my world. In a world full of like piss pigs and subs, that would probably be an effective uh an effective way to make some money. We will block you. <laughs> yeah, for ten dollars. <laughs> oh, we'll do a uh, We'll do a theology rating where you can like send us your uh, your bookshelf list and we critique it when it's full of of John Piper. I just like vomit on video
1: or just like or even like the standard like this has been going around Twitter lately like four theologians that that you know are that describe my theology and it's almost always like James Cone, um, like either Bart or or Tillich and then Gutierrez and then I'm trying to think of they 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 always have some token woman usually like what's that what's the lady's name Sund, Sund Sundenheim or whatever. That's that's the anyway. Whatever. I was trying to make a point. It's obviously we should just transition to talking about Advent resources. Speaking of Advent,
0: Uh, yeah. Speaking of Advent, it uh, it means arrival.
1: Means coming. I usually say <laughs> expectation is the word that I usually comes for me. Uh, I, no, I'm not going to be able to say another thing in this whole damn pod without thinking it has some kind of subtext to it. I think this is a perfect time to shout out... Um, we need some of those air horns just to over this whole part just to lead us right into like right now is when the episode starts.
0: Yeah. I think that uh, now is a perfect time to talk about how um, sexually charged a lot
1: of religious language is. <laughs> Who wants to kick us off with an Advent thought? I mean, the the typical Advent thought is that you've you've got two different things. Like every time Advent comes up uh, or every time Advent comes around every year, you have online the people who kind of immediately are like, oh, you need to take Advent more seriously and kind of just become so legalistic about it, which is great. I understand. I enjoy Advent. Uh, And then you have the people, which I think is most people who are not online and in theology type Twitter circles who I don't know if they don't care, but it's definitely not as important to a lot of people. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm happy to be wrong about that. But my experience in the church has been that it's not that it's not important, but it's just, it's not the same. It doesn't have that same kind of marker of time that Christmas does. And they're just gonna, they kind of, it all gets lumped together. People are just waiting to listen, to sing the Christmas uh, hymns and the carols and the Advent songs almost always are not that great. Hot take.
2: That is a hot take. (laughs) You're, you're pissing off like everyone who loves Episcopal hymnody in I know. that.
1: Well, hey, that's fine. <laughs> because I, I'm, I've been on record before that the Episcopalians sing all the wrong hymns. So, uh, yeah, there we are.
0: Wow, wow. Well, I think that uh, regardless, one of the things that I appreciate about Advent, and just to be totally clear about what it is, it's like the... Period of four weeks leading up to Christmas. So Advent begins on November 29th. It's the very first, it's the beginning of a new calendar year for the Christian church. The liturgical calendar rolls over before the actual one. So if you want to get out of 2020 sooner, observe Advent because it'll be 2021 on November 29th. But, you know, it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. And then there's 12 days of christmas that season lasts for 12 days and then there's an additional depending on the the calendar 4 to 7 weeks of the season of epiphany and you know what what's sort of instructive about some of the background history and all this stuff is that epiphany used to be with pentecost and easter the third most important sunday in the in the church calendar not christmas centuries and centuries before christmas became a big practice epiphany was Uh, celebrated as the day in the Eastern Church of Christ's birth, but more importantly, as like sort of the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles and his ministry in the church. So it used to be... The one of the most important days, and now I'm pretty sure most people in America do not observe it. It is the observance of Epiphany is way more important in the global church than it is in American Christianity, for sure.
1: Yeah, and I, I was obviously tongue in cheek a little bit about uh, Advent, and just just in case anybody involved in my ordination is listening, um, I was uh, I was being a little bit tongue in cheek. But the, the thing that I never appreciated about the church calendar i guess until i became an episcopalian was the idea of like you know as a methodist it's kind of it was always kind of vaguely there for for the churches that i served but we definitely didn't follow it in the same way that the episcopalians do but i just i love the idea of thinking about it as a way of organizing time that helps to orient us or orient us towards god i can't say that word and so to me, like there's something really for somebody that struggles with, I guess, spiritual practices due to a fair amount of ADD. In case you haven't noticed, um, you know, having that kind of as like almost like guardrails or bumpers that I can kind of bump up against and kind of helps keeping me focused and, and um, yeah, just focused on on what's happening. I guess in the church calendar is really important. And once I kind of unlocked it from that point of view, it's been it's been much more interesting to me to kind of follow. You know, when we're moving into Advent and what that looks like with the scripture readings and everything else.
2: Yeah, and one thing that I really appreciate about Advent is that, uh, I mean, I think like a common, like, Advent take that you hear in sermons and stuff is like, Advent is about waiting and preparing your heart, and it's not about commercialism or buying Christmas presents, and like, I think that's a pretty common take. But I do, I, I first um, really like engaged with like a lot of writing around Advent. When I was um, a missionary, and I was in Kosovo for Advent in 2015, and I was having like a really horrible time. <laughs> like it was, it was a really hard uh, month of my program, and there was like a lot of uh, conflict going on. And I just like did not feel joyful at all, and like didn't feel in the Christmas spirit. And like Kosovo and winter is awful like it's everything is gray and you never see the sun and it's like foggy all day uh and it was just yeah it was a really bad time and I just like was not feeling Christmas at all and I usually love Christmas and so uh engaging like I was reading a lot about Advent and I think like the space that Advent creates for not immediately feeling joy but for preparing Preparing the way for joy, like holding space that may, maybe someday you will feel joy again, even if right now um, you need to live in the expectation was a really helpful perspective for me in that time and and remains so.
1: Yeah, so. The, there's there's something what you said is really, I think is really good. Um, and part of, there's a book by Don or I think, um, and he talked about like basically identifying like the church seasons by like feeling almost um, and the feelings were stuff like gratitude holy fear penitence joy suffering love of god and neighbor and so it was that, it was like another way of trying to understand the kind of the church calendar being able to say like in this season this is what we are you don't have to like you, it doesn't mean you can't feel you can't feel joy during, you know, like Lent. I know we're talking about Advent, but it's saying that like this season of Advent is focused around this kind of feeling um, and this kind of affection, I think, is the word that he used. Um, And then being able to kind of live into that and just be able to kind of see and interact with a different part of God, maybe that wouldn't be your normal rote procedure. So yeah, I appreciate that.
0: Well, I think there's an obvious uh, connection to be made here for people between what Advent typically is meant to be, which is the season of fasting and preparation like Lent. I mean, it's it's uh, a little Lent, you know, is how it used to be referred to. And so um, the conversation around the two is the same, but I, I think especially in the middle of the pandemic, when um, there is a lot of delayed gratitude, delayed joy, um, a continuing of the tension of isolation, um, mounting COVID numbers, To astronomical levels throughout the season, I, I think all of that invites invites itself to and lends itself well to uh, practicing Advent in in whatever way seems best. But I think the biggest thing is a lot of time Advent discourse is about kind of uh, denial of like putting off Christmas joy and and especially like with singing. You know, we want to sing Advent hymns and then singing Christmas ones. And actually, I, I don't really think that that is a particularly helpful posture to take, mainly because when I sing Christmas hymns or something before before the actual season, it, it is a like anticipatory practice for me. So sure. um, you know, I, I think that what one of the things we wanted to talk about today is just some like advent resources for people who maybe don't have a practice. You know, it, it's a good time to do like a daily reflection. And uh, I have a host, I have a stack of books here that are suited to that, and at least one music recommendation uh, as well. But I, what if I start start off season practice recommendations with uh, a book rec? What do y'all think? And then y'all can jump in.
1: Yeah. Can I, can I speak to something you just said though, and then uh, share mm-hmm. something amusing? Uh, the, it is interesting when you, when people get kind of almost too, I don't know, fundamentalist about about not being able to sing those things. That, I think that's just a point that needs to be stated again. Like I think in Lent, uh I don't, do Methodists take away the hallelujahs in Lent? I'm assuming they do, but I don't remember. You know, that, that's... that's not really well, do any of that. <laughs>
2: I think it depends on the church. Okay. Mine, mine
1: definitely didn't. Yeah, okay. But but like in, in my current church, we do do that. And it's actually a really interesting thing to talk about with kids about like why we don't say hallelujah during Lent. And then you get to... Proclaim it on Easter morning. We do all this stuff. But like with Advent, it is kind of a switch. Uh, And then the funny story I was going to tell in my first youth ministry role ever, I was not prepared for that. And I don't want to say where I went to, went to. Uh, seminary, so they don't know that I came out not knowing this. But through the entire first Advent of my job, I kept calling it Lent because I was confused about where we were. And uh, and a kid, like third week of the, of the of like the weekly youth group in Sunday school, <laughs> I'm talking about. I'm talking about Advent, but I'm you saying Lent, and it's like whatever. A kid, this kid Zach was like, uh, "Bliss." He goes, "I think you mean Advent," and I was like. Yeah, what have I been saying? He's like, Lent. I was like, oh. So anyway, just putting it out there. So if you're feeling like, oh, I didn't even know there were Advent resources out there, just solidarity. I didn't even know Advent was a thing.
0: Okay, well, <laughs> we've all been corrected by the Youngs at one point or another. Uh, the first thing that I'm going to go with is, is my favorite Advent thing. And if you know me, then I've probably given you this book uh, if I've known you long enough. But it's called All Creation Waits, The Advent Mystery of New Beginnings by Gail Boss. I don't know, I'm showing, holding it up to the computer, but basically, it's an Advent daily devotional about an animal each day, specifically talking about how they survive the winter. And it just is really, really incredible uh, just to hear all of the cool things about animals that live around you and, and how they survive the winter, but also just like the reflection that, uh, it brings to bear on Advent as a season where it's like these animals have to figure out a way to live through the harsh, harshest season of the year in totally different circumstances than they typically live. And they embrace it without fear, without anxiety. They just, it's part of like the, the practice that they have. And, and there's something beautiful in that. I, and just for an example, the first day is about painted turtles who, in the beginning of December, descend to the bottom of a lake and go inside of their shell and don't breathe again for four to five months. They do not breathe. And so what happens is that you know the, the lake freezes over top of them. They're down, um, not moving in their shell at the bottom of the lake and their blood fills up with lactic acid because they're not getting oxygen. So what happens is that their shell starts to dissolve and produce calcium to keep them from dying. And so, at the end of the uh, at the end of the winter, when they come back up for air, they spend all summer eating to restore the hardness of their shell so that it can dissolve again over the winter and keep them alive while they're living in a zero oxygen environment. Um, you know, yeah, so it's just it's a really cool daily thing. It's very short. You can read it with kids too. Uh, it's awesome. The whole thing is is great. So all creation weights. The Advent Mystery of New Beginnings by Gail Boss, you can get it on any bookstore thing. Comes from Paraclete Press. That's my first recommendation.
1: I'll go next. Uh, so mine would be... My first one would be... There's a, a group called The Salt Project. Are you all familiar with them? Mm-hmm. They create lots of different like videos and um, resources. The one that I really love, though, is for Advent. They have uh, an Advent... It's almost like a like a like a zine if you're of a certain age, you know what that is. But it's a uh, a printable resource uh, called Maya Angelou and the Freedom Poetry of Advent. And so it's just a quick thing that you know churches or even people if, if you're just a person out there, uh, not necessarily connected to a church, you can download it for free. Churches have to pay to use it. Uh, But it's an Advent devotional that has biblical texts, some really simple but accessible practices for Advent, which I found pretty helpful. Um, And it's all kind of interwoven with uh, Maya Angelou's poetry, kind of like this vision of what faith, freedom, and dignity uh, means. And the reason I love that is because I think Advent can get disconnected from a lot of those. We can we can get so not that it's bad, but we can get Trapped is the wrong word. We get we can get so focused on the scripture story, and we know that it's leading up to Christmas, and we know kind of you know well some of us know the Christmas story. We have a mishmash of ideas of what Christmas is a lot of times. But I think when it becomes this is something that helps us to reframe, and so like any good resource in my mind is something that reframes how we might have thought or gives us a new lens through which to think about that. And this thing um, through uh, through Salt Project is just a wonderful resource, and like I said, free to download for personal use. No, actually, I'm wrong. It's 10 bucks. Sorry, I just looked at the website to make sure. (laughs) Salt Project's coming for us. (laughs) Going to put us on Fight Corner.
2: Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, I did not know that we needed to have a list of resources. So, (laughs) off the dome (laughs) from Carrie today. Um, Well, I think like a a tactile thing that can be fun is you can make your own advent wreath, which maybe. Maybe other families do that. My family never did because uh we went to a church that had an advent wreath. So we were like, why do we need one at our home?
1: There's some big Method- someone. There's some big Methodist energy in that right there.
2: <laughs> well that, but also I think it was like, why do we like my mom is not big on open flame in the home. So I think it was that was part of it as well but also I think there's like, some, I think there's an argument to be made for like having an advent wreath in a place of community and ha- having that be part of a, a corporate process instead of just something that happens in your own family. But anyway, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I think that making your own advent wreath just with like, uh, I mean, you can buy like pine, pine boughs or whatever at, at your local Callaway's at your local plant shop if you want. And I think that can be a fun way to, uh, you don't have to sit down and do it every day. I have a hard time doing daily things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we—I've never really—I never really did that either. Um, you know, it was always enough that it happened at church for me <laughs> as well. But we—we we have one now because the church that I serve does them for families. They families get together and make them, and it's been something that my kids actually really enjoy doing. And so, like, if I forget to get up and light the candle, they'll get all—they'll get all pissy with me about it. Which is, you know, is one of the noted uh, aff- uh, affections of 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 Advent, as that Don Cailier talks about in his book, uh, "Pissiness from Teenagers." So, uh, it, it fits right in with the with the with the. The season
2: but i also think making your own advent wreath could be helpful in this season uh i mean my my family just had to leave a church because uh like kind of indefinitely because they're reopening and you know i live with high-risk people so we can't really go back and i know that isaac's church is not meeting in person currently so it can be like an isolating season
0: Yeah, totally. And I think the other thing that just came up for me is that if you're a parent listening to this, this is a much better practice to cultivate a sense of like Christmas spirit and practice than say Elf on the Shelf, which is terrible and awful.
2: I... So one of the articles that I like read it years ago and that stuck with me is how Elf on it was an argument that elf on the shelf is just preparing your children to live in a police state. And
1: <laughs> pretty much
2: I I mean, I read that and it just it entered my consciousness and <laughs> it's all I think about when I see elf on the shelf now.
1: So okay, so we we never did Elf on the Shelf for our kids. We did. We had no problem doing Santa. I know. I know Isaac might have some some thoughts on that, which I just learned recently. Uh, we can bring that up in a little bit. Uh, but we never did it, right? Because I, I also think it's creepy, and it's just like it's just it always feels like one of those things it's like you already have santa why the, why the hell do we need this damn elf sitting up there it's like my kids already act fine but my son has like always always taken it like that it is some kind of like that we have done him a disservice in his childhood because we didn't do elf on the shelf right um and but we just would never buy one cuz also they're kind of expensive uh they're like 40 or 50 bucks it's like stupid but anyway the uh last year last year or 2 years ago he got a a random like uh, target gift card from somebody for Christmas and he he was very secretive about what he was going to do with it and he went to target and he was like I'm gonna buy a present for us for the family i was like oh that's really nice and the little bastard brought back um, uh elf on the shelf so now we have an elf on the shelf that that he i've tried to get rid of two years in a row but every year he grabs it before I can and it sits on our freaking um fireplace mantle so anyway the the, the moral of that story is. is sometimes you just have you should just do it so you don't have to deal with it when they're teenagers it can disappear when they're younger and it's easier but as a teenager he's a little bit more aware so
2: conversely my mom was like we would have never done Elf on the Shelf because you would have been terrified that someone <laughs> was watching you sleep for all of you As and so if you're raising a child with an anxiety disorder don't do help well on the shelves.
1: right? Like both of my kids. Like the idea that my kids would like my kids were already freaked out by the idea of Santa Claus coming into our house and like how does he get out and what if he didn't get to all the houses? Um, you know, it, th- yeah, that's a perfect point. So that's what I'm gonna bring to him later. That's what I'm gonna after we get done recording. I'm gonna tell him, listen, son, we were doing this for your mental health, Brian. Son, if you're listening
0: to this, he wants a Lamelo Ball Minnesota Timberwolves jersey for Christmas, um, the Prince version. No, he's yeah. uh, anyway.
1: He's a Raptors fan, actually. He likes the Raptors old jersey. So there you go, Isaac. The, the, I was the, the, talking about the, you. I am talking about for oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine, fine. Anyway. Christmas gift for Brian. Moving on. We're not talking about Christmas. We're talking about Advent. So let's just carry on with the next uh, with the next uh, resource.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna list a couple here because I I have uh, too many. Okay, there's a great another daily thing that will take you all the way through epiphany called Light Upon Light. It's compiled by Sarah Arthur, and it's a oh I letter- love that one. Yeah, it's a literary guide to prayer for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And so every day you, or every each week, there's like um, a poem or an excerpt from a short story or from a novel uh, with some scripture lessons you can read all sort of compiled around a theme. It's really, um, it's a lovely uh, print also from Paraclete Press. That's really good, Light Upon Light. And then there's also a, a Christmas readings book by uh, compilation by Madeline Lingle and Lucy Shaw called Winter Song that I recommend as well. That are that are both good. Yeah, just two
1: recommendations for me, Brian. What do you got next? Yeah, I mean, I I can do a couple as well. Um, one is. I think if you are working in a church or you're just a, happen to be a parent, there's a uh, a group called Illustrated Ministry that does a lot of uh, good stuff. It's as the name suggests, all things that are related around uh, animation and or coloring. So they have huge coloring sheets that we would always put out for. People at our own church. Um, I've gotten them for actually for my kids in the past, and we just set them on our table, uh, our dining room table, and you can kind of just sit there and, and work through them. They have stickers uh, that you can make it into nativity scenes, just entire like curriculum full of stuff that is very kids friendly, very progressive, which is one of the things that I like. There's not a not a, a white Jesus to be seen in, in, in any of their stuff. So children's uh, illustrated ministry is is really wonderful. The second one that I would go with is a book called Faithful Families: Creating Sacred Moments at Home by Tracy. Smith. Uh, it's not a, an Advent-specific book, but it has sections on it for Advent. And so what I really like about it, though, is that you don't just get into Advent and all of a sudden you are trying to introduce all of these things that you're trying to have as these like sacred moments, whether it's a, like, a, like a, um, an Advent wreath or we're going to say these devotional prayers for these four weeks, and suddenly your kids are like, the hell is going on here, right? Like it's it's one of those things that like cultivates practices throughout the whole year, and it's specific for families, so they're highly uh, usable. They're really easy to kind of adopt, and it's one of those things. They're low risk, so if you do one, and your kids are just staring at you, like my kids have always done when we do this kind of stuff, um, like you know, which is more of a reflection on me probably than than them. Uh, it's one of those things where it's like the next time you might find something that that they really appreciate. So, faithful families creating sacred moments at home by Tracy Smith.
2: One book, if you're like really new to the church here or Advent in general, is uh, the first book that I ever read that really introduced me to like what Advent was about was The Irrational Season by Madeline Lingle, which is uh, a memoir. It's the third in a series of memoirs, but you don't really need to read the first two to read The Irrational Season. Um, And it starts in one Advent and ends in the following year's Advent. And I mean, I reread it every year. I think it's a really good introduction to uh, well, some of the ways of thinking about the season. And also, I love Madeline Lingle. She's she's my favorite writer, so.
0: I've got two. Uh, I've got a music recommendation and it's like the most on-brand crap, but whatever. Sufjan Stevens I knew Christmas it. album. I knew, I
1: knew it was coming. <laughs> you, know, you should have not even said it. We should You should have let us guess what you were going to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, he has two Christmas albums. One of them is just called Christmas, and the other one's called uh, or Songs for Christmas, and the other one's called Silver and Gold. And uh, they're both awesome. They, they are sort of on constant repeat in in my house during the season. And that's part of the reason why I say screw waiting until December 25th to listen to the good stuff. Get that out now. But, um, Especially in pandemic year, Silver and Gold has a particular, particularly apocalyptic tinge to it. And it, it's pretty fitting for this year. But also, he unintentionally wrote the ultimate Christmas pandemic song. It's called Christmas in the Room. And it's about two people who don't go anywhere for Christmas. And it's a really great song, but it's also definitely uh, prophetic for 2020. So I, I highly recommend both of those
1: albums. They will reawaken your uh, your love for Christmas music. Yeah, but we're going to have a special guest here on the podcast in just a second. But uh, his version of Come Thou Font of Every Blessing is just like... That's something I listen to every year. I don't remember which album it's actually on, but uh, I really appreciate this. Christmas. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my son just walked in to, my, to the podcast area. So we're going to ask him a question about... So Ben, here, do you want to listen? So we were talking about Elf on the Shelf and how you went rogue and bought your own Elf of the Shelf. And then they, they say that I might have uh, disparaged you publicly on this thing by saying that I thought it was uh, a bad purchase and, and not very smart. What are your thoughts on Elf in the Shelf and why kids should have it? He's a beautiful being. He stalks you all Are right. you talking about me or? No, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's a beautiful being and he sits on your shelf. I don't believe in Santa, but... Uh, do you believe in Elf on the Shelf? Yes, he's beautiful. Look at those beautiful eyes. I mean,
2: that's all I have to say. All right, thanks. Uh, ben, uh, ben, before you...
1: Wait. Questions.
2: Ben, before you go, can you can you state your age for the record? Um, 14. <laughs> okay, thank you.
0: He's beautiful. I think that your son enjoys getting stalked by Elf on the Shelf.
1: Listen, Is that what you was saying? I don't know. He's He's performative. I don't know where he gets that from, so...
0: This is what happened. I mean, I, this, he has been raised in a police state. He needs, reassured. He's reassured by surveillance. Michel
1: Foucault is uh, just like (laughs) wigging out. We tried. tried, Rolling is great. We tried to stop it. I'm saying this is more of a cultural problem that we tried to stop it and culture told him he needed it. So, society.
2: Okay.